Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, and tonight we'll take a look at verses 24 and 25. But in our study of Romans, we've reached a point, that our unit of Scripture, that Martin Luther called the chief point, in the very central place of the epistle, and he said, and of the whole Bible. And while it would be difficult, but more effective probably, to study Romans 3, 21 through 26 in one setting, it would challenge even the most dedicated of Bible students to sit for that long. And so out of necessity, we've broken this passage up into four lessons. I kind of chuckle sometimes. I've got I to gotta get, get this off my chest. It's, it's one thing to say, listen, if you were really interested in the Word of God, you would sit here till midnight to hear it preached. Yeah, if, if you pushed it, and if it's the only time you ever got to hear it preached. But I don't think that's a fair statement to make. Sometimes preachers can say things in 30 minutes that they stretch out to an hour and a half or two hours. And so um, I, think, I think also the human mind and the, and the Holy Spirit uses the human mind to concentrate better. Sometimes if things are broken down into smaller units, then we put it all together at the end. So I'm not going to keep you for four hours. I want to break it up into four different segments. And in verse 21, Paul reiterates the revelation of God's righteousness and relates it to the Old Testament. We studied that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, last week we took a look at verses 22 and 23 and a little bit into 24 and 25, but that all human beings equal in their sin have equal access to God's righteousness through faith, primarily verses 22 through 23. Uh, we started it last week, but we'll complete it this week. The, the source of God's righteousness and the gracious provision of Christ as an atoning sacrifice is the subject of verses 24 and the first part of 25, and that's what we'll focus on tonight, those two verses. And finally, in two weeks... The atonement not only provides for the justification of sinners, but also demonstrates the justness of God throughout the process. That's 25b through 26. In this section, there's a strong emphasis on the integrity of God. And by integrity of God, I mean his always acting in complete accordance with his own character, the integrity of God. Now, let's, for context, let's read the passage. And starting in verse 21, Paul says, But now, apart from the law... The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And remember, last week we, we suggested that the phrase, for there is no distinction, and in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, is a, is a bit of a parenthetical idea or parenthetical statement. Then he picks up the thought again in verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God publicly displayed as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of, one, of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. In the flow of Paul's argument... Verse, when in verse 22a, Paul declares that God's righteousness extends to all who exercise faith, that Paul then in the next phrase, or actually beginning with the phrase, there is no distinction, he anticipates, as it were, an interruption. It's as if someone, perhaps a Jewish person, he might be thinking, is asking, well, wait a minute, you, you said that the righteousness of God is going to be given to those who exercise faith in Jesus Christ, but what about us? 
What about us? We've lived good lives. We've had the law. We're the custodians of God's word. What about us? We don't necessarily think Christ is the Messiah. We're not going to go that route, but we're good people. What about us? And then so Paul says, there's no distinction. Probably, meaning there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, should that have been something, a new idea for those who have been reading this letter? I don't think so. Paul's been covering that from 118 to 3.20. Remember the three categories of persons that he said needed a Savior? First, the moralist needs a Savior. I mean, I'm sorry, the immoralist needs a Savior. And that's pretty obvious. Nobody's going to argue with that. The person who's a sexual degenerate or, or in that category, everybody say, Amen, they need a Savior. And then Paul throws him kind of a curveball and says, well, the moralist needs a Savior too. The moralist says, oh, my goodness, you think I need a Savior? I'm good. I'm not as bad as that person. And Paul says, yeah, you're not as bad as that person as far as you're concerned, but you practice the same things. That doesn't mean they practice the same types of immorality, but, but there's an internal and an external aspect of sin. And these people, they weren't condemned because they were judging things that were rightly sinful. In fact, you know, the, the, the most popular verse that actually is a verse in people's minds now is not John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, you know, the one that you learned uh, probably first in your life. The most popular verse amongst people today in the United States is judge not that you be not judged. And they take it, they just rip it from its context and they say you can't be judgmental, there is no right and wrong, everything's morally relative. In fact, 91%, get this number and, and do something with it, 91% of those who were Surveyed by um, uh, Camp Crusade, um, I'm drawing a blank. I'm sorry, Camp Crusade for Christ. Josh McDowell. 91% of kids that claimed to be Christians did not hold to absolute truth. No absolutes whatsoever. 91% in our families. That's pretty. That's pretty scary. But back to the moralist. The moralist is not condemned because they judge things as being sinful. They're condemned because they do the same thing. And so Paul says, you're just as condemned. You might, not commit a, you might not commit overt adultery, but just like Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, you've been thinking it, you're just as guilty before God. There's one category of persons kind of sitting in the background saying, I think I'm going to get out of this. I think I'm going to be the category that doesn't need a Savior, and that's the Jew. And Paul says, oh, by the way, Jewish person, you need a Savior too. You had the oracles of God, you had incredible privileges, but you didn't do with them what you should have done. So all three categories of person, the immoralist, the moralist, and the Jew, all need to save your fall. Finally concludes in 3.9 that we have charged that both Jews and Greeks, both Jews and Gentiles, are all under sin. So the person who makes this imaginary or hypothetical interruption really has no, no leg to stand on. Paul's already made his case that there is no distinction. All have sinned. That's past tense, and fall short of the glory of God. Actually, that is present tense. The answer to, then, the parenthetical question is that you're all guilty. Every single one of you. Every single one of us is guilty. There is no one that is walking this earth that doesn't need a Savior unless they have, of course, appropriated the remedy for that, and that would, uh, that would solve that. So returning now to the main line of thought, which is a righteousness of God, from God, which through faith in Jesus Christ comes to all who exercise faith, Paul continues, being freely justified by his grace through the redemption accomplished in Christ. This redemption, this redemption is a purchase. Some might say we've been purchased from the slave market of sin, from, our, from the 
position of born, being born into a, a sinful status. And this is not going to happen. Jesus Christ pays the price for everybody. But not everybody is going to receive the benefit of that. Only those who exercise faith are going to receive justification. And when used here, just like in Romans 3.24, in the dominant forensic sense, to justify means to declare righteous. And justification might be defined as that gracious act of God, whereby on the basis solely of Christ's accomplished mediatorial work, he declares the sinner just. Now, you may not say that to your family and friends unless you're trying to impress them tomorrow, but what I want you to understand is when we're declared righteous, when we are justified before God, it does include forgiveness of sin, but it's more than that. It's being declared righteous. So there's a, there's a negative aspect, which sins are removed, but it's more than achieving a status of just as if I had never sinned. You're being declared righteous. You're given a righteousness that's compatible with God's righteousness, and that is what justification means. Justification is a matter of imputation or reckoning or charging. The sinner's guilt is imputed to Christ, and then Christ's righteousness is imputed to the sinner. This is done freely. It means as a gift, without payment made by the one who receives it, without any human merit. If the sinner is to be declared righteous at all, it will have to be freely. For it's been shown in 118 through 320, as measured by the standard of God's requirement, human merit is impossible. Man cannot earn the great and basic blessing of justification. We can only accept it as a gift by grace. Grace is one of the most important words in your spiritual life. Now, up until now, you may have wondered, is, this really, is it really a necessity for me to understand what justification is? Yes, it is. And I'll tell you why. Because you can't run out and attempt to apply doctrine or biblical truth on a high level without a foundation of theology to back it up. You just can't do it. Now, you can, you can apply some truth, and I hope you're applying the truth that you're aware of. But before you can say, well, I understand grace, I appreciate grace, I live by grace, then you have to understand the, 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 the foundational underpinnings of that. And one of the, the foundational aspects of grace is we have to know where we came from. All of us have, were born sinful. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When we, by grace through faith, accept Jesus Christ for, for the forgiveness of our sins and to receive eternal life, when we do that, God freely bestows upon us unmerited favor. He gives us Christ, God's riches at Christ's expense. And somebody had to pay for us getting it. That's probably the main point I want to make tonight. We'll make it when we get in the middle of verse 25. Somebody had to pay. This is not a, it's, it's free to us, but it costs God everything. And until we really get that, you're not going to live in a way that you really want to live before God. There's always going to be some frustration in your life. As soon as, just, if you just for a second, even just a little bit, think that you had it coming to you, I'm a good guy or I'm a good gal, I got this coming to me, you're just not going to move in your spiritual life the way that you really want to move, the way I know you want to move. And that's more and more toward Jesus Christ every day, toward a greater love and appreciation for him every day. Well, if you want to really appreciate him, you've got to know what he did for you. You've got to know. That's why sometimes the communion service will be very meaningful to you, and sometimes it won't. 
and, and in a manner of speaking, you can kind of evaluate yourself and how you've done since the last communion service by how real the next one is. If your mind has wandered, if your life has kind of wandered away from Christ, if you've quit appreciating what he did for you, then the next time you remember him, it's not going to be as memorable. And it's not going to be as rich or meaningful. If it's just, if it's just sort, sort of distant second cousin that you're thinking about, It'd be no different than going out to the Veterans Memorial Cemetery next week and visiting the, the headstone of Dennis Meekins. A couple of you would know who that would be. For a couple of you, it would be very meaningful because you've, even, you've got pictures of him in your home. I mean, he's, he's, that's my father-in-law who's with the Lord, the, the kids' grandparents. Very meaningful for them because it, he, he means something to them. They have fragrant memories of him. They, they consider him all the time. He did nice things for him. Taught my kids how to ride their bicycle and how to throw a baseball when I was unfortunately too busy to do that. At least thought it that I was. You know, spoil the kids with candy and, and soft drinks and everything. And so as soon as their mother came back and we picked them up from going out on dates, then, then uh, he would catch it and he'd do it again the next time, even though he caught it the first time. Well, th- we appreciate going out and visiting his headstone because we know him. We can appreciate what he's done. Well, how about Jesus Christ? If it's been a long time since you've considered what he did for you, I'm not talking about just in words. I mean really sit down and consider that he, he gave it all up for us. If it's been a long time, then I'd like for you to consider it afresh now, tonight, tomorrow, the next day, and the next, and pray about it and thank the Lord, thank God for the sacrifice that he made of his son. That's the application to this. If you go out and you just impress your friends that you know the, the definition of justification and they don't, you've lost. We've all lost. I've lost because I hadn't, I hadn't put forth the beauty of this passage for you. It's by grace. It's free. And we had to have grace or we wouldn't get it. And this redemption is accomplished. This purchase out of our sinful status is accomplished through Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 25, whom God, this is Jesus Christ, whom God publicly displayed as a propitiation in his blood through faith. The term publicly displayed, protithemy, means to place or set before. That's how we get the translation, publicly displayed. But the term also carries with it the idea of proposing as a penalty or offering something up. Hence the New King James translates it, set forth. Or the New, uh, New International Version translates it, presented. The Revised Standard uh, Version, put forward. You can see that this is a difficult word to translate, but I think publicly displayed is okay, just so you understand that this is God has offered up Jesus Christ for us. Now, why do you have to do that? You say, well, why can't he just say, well, it's, it's okay. All y'all, y'all come free. You know, I love you guys. You know, God's love, right? I love you, so I've decided to save you all. Why didn't he do that? Why did he go to all the trouble of sacrificing his only begotten son? Matter of fact, all I want you to do is just do, do a few good deeds for me, and then we'll, we'll set it aside. Well, the reason he didn't do that is because he couldn't do that and remain consistent with his own essence. Because he's, he's absolute holiness. Absolute holiness can't have eternal fellowship with people like you and me unless we have his holiness or his righteousness. That's why he had, had to do it. He had to publicly offer he had to offer up his son or set forth present his son as a propitiation propitiation is one of those hundred dollar theological words that that once you understand what it means you'll never forget it but it means a satisfaction it means that that god was satisfied 
with the work that Jesus Christ did. The Greek word propitiation in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures that was made a couple hundred years before Christ, this word indicates the blood-sprinkled lid of the Ark of the Covenant. That's why the authorized version translates this mercy seat. So if, if you have a, a Bible, it may, it may read whom God publicly displayed as the mercy seat. I would prefer, I, I prefer the term propitiation, and I'll tell you why in just a second. It also could be translated that, like the NIV does, atonement cover. When you see, and I know a lot of you have different Bibles, that's why I'm mentioning these things. When you see uh, verses that are translated differently in your Bible and the one next to you and the one next to you, ordinarily that indicates that the, that the uh, underlying Greek was difficult to translate. Hence, you've got a lot of the different versions will translate it a different way. Uh, some verses are the same in almost every Bible, but this is one of those ones that was a little bit challenging for the translators. So, uh, but, but I'm going to stay with the, the New American Standard, since that's what most of you have, whom God, Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. This could be understood theologically as a wrath removing sacrifice or the divine satisfaction with the work of Christ so that God's wrath is removed in the 21st century and certainly toward the middle or the end of the 20th century that idea of God's wrath is one that we all I'm talking about we as as human race kind of wanted to set aside and we didn't want to think about we wanted to focus on certain aspects of God's essence and his character that we were comfortable with, like love. We wanted a loving God. But we didn't want to think about a God of wrath, a God who hated sin. Matter of fact, we have an idea in our head that hatred is a sin, so God couldn't really hate sin. It had to be anthropopathic. He really doesn't hate anything, right? No. That's not the way I would view the text. If you're going to say something's anthropopathic, you better have a better reason than that. No, God does hate sin, and you better hate sin too. You know, it's okay to hate. You just better be careful what it is you hate. And now, if you hate another human being, then, then, you're, then you're sinful. But if you hate what another human being does sometimes, then you're just having the same attitude that God has. So, yeah, it's okay to hate if you hate like God does. God hates sin, and he hates it so badly that his wrath or his anger has to be poured out upon it. That's what Paul says back in the first part of this whole section, beginning in 118. The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So we've got this problem, and it's called the wrath of God. Some of your Bibles might translate it the anger of God, and it's directed toward sin. And guess what? You know, you've, you've heard this phrase probably all your life, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Well, actually, there, there are passages that talk about God hating the sinner. Now, it's because that sinner is so identified with his sin that the two can't be separated. But God has judged the sin without condemning you unless you want to remain attached to it. There's one place in this life that you don't want to be. There's one place. I mean, there are probably several, but there's one place that you never want to find yourself, and that's in between me and, say, like one of my kids or my family. If, if there's some sort of conflict, don't go there. Don't get, it may be totally irrational. I know I've been told that. 
It might, it might be that way, but that's the way that it is. It's kind of like one place you don't want to be if you're out in the woods is between a grizzly bear and her cub. You just don't want to be there. Well, I'll tell you somewhere you don't want to be spiritually, and that is as, as the focus of God's wrath. Because you're in big trouble if that happens. And, and so God had to do something about this. And that's what the propitiation of Christ was. That's what his atoning sacrifice was. It, it, it was a wrath-removing sacrifice. But it cost a lot. As I've said before, God didn't. God the Father didn't just pick some unknown angel from some remote part of the universe that nobody would miss, nobody ever knew, that didn't have any family. He said, well, I'm going to pour all my wrath out upon you. We knew he couldn't do that because there's only one person that was qualified to be the Redeemer, and that was his own son. And so that's where the wrath of God was poured out upon. It was poured out upon Jesus Christ. And the text goes on to say, in his blood... Through faith, or technically speaking, in, in terms of word order, it would be through faith in his blood. Now, this is a very, I know, I know it's, we're at the last ten minutes of the class, and I know this is a tough time to concentrate after a long day, and I, and I appreciate you being here. I know a lot of you have been up since 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, but, but try to, to ask God for just a little bit of extra grace right now to follow this last part because it's real, real important. The phrase, through faith, doesn't go back and modify God publicly or displaying Jesus as a propitiation. That didn't happen because we had faith. The words, through faith, or through faith in his blood, that is what rightly relates us to that sacrifice. Does that make sense? He's not not saying that that God decided to send his son because we we were going to be faithful. That's not what this text means. It means if we want to be associated with that sacrifice, then we have to have faith. Now it says through faith in his blood. Ordinarily, the object of faith in the scriptures is stated to be the person of Christ himself. Even in our own passage tonight, the one that I said was the central passage of all the scriptures, according to Martin Luther, in, in verses 22 and through in 26, Jesus Christ, the person, is said to be the object of faith. But here, faith is said to be directed toward his blood or his work. We trust Jesus Christ to save us. He can do so because the wrath of God has been satisfied by his work. The two ideas are essentially inseparable. And that's why Paul, I believe, uses them interchangeably here. And that's why also you'll hear sometimes evangelists say, uh, place your faith in Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross. Because those two things are inseparable. So that's why Paul in most places will say faith in the person of Christ. But here he does say faith in the blood of Christ, which I'm going to show you, I believe, is the work of Christ on the cross. There's been a lot of what I believe is sloppy theology and and resultant sloppy hymnology when it comes to this phrase, the blood of Christ. By referring to the blood of Christ, Paul here refers to his work on the cross, the substitutionary sacrifice that he made. There's been a lot of argument historically about this. I want to say not so much today. When you attend seminary, you'd have a 
a Greek professor in the New Testament department, somebody like Professor Johnson back there, that would give you an assignment, say, in the book of Ephesians. I know that's one of the things. I assume they still do that. They write exegetical papers. And one of the things that you do in writing that exegetical paper is you've got to come up and show the professor, I think, two or three exegetical problems that you'll deal with in a passage uh, that has been chosen for you. Usually, I think, in that class, it's, it's one that they've assigned to you. Well, I remember having a passage in Ephesians where this phrase, the blood of Christ, came up. I knew that there was a historical argument about the meaning of that phrase, so I went to Professor Hall Harris and, and said, I, I would like to do that as one of my exegetical problems. And he said, do what? And I said, I would like to argue what my view is on what the blood of Christ means in this passage. And he said, well, what's your view of the blood of Christ? And I said, well, I believe that the blood of Christ in this passage is a pregnant verbal symbol for the entirety of the work of Christ on the cross. That's from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. And he says, well, yeah. He said, what's the problem? I said, well, you know, there is the historical problem of the Roman Catholic Church about it being, you know, caught up in a literal vase and taken up to heaven. He said, yeah, but this is evangelical seminary. I'm not really sure you need to spend a lot of time on that. I was looking for other issues in the passage. I said, well, there's also been a lot of discussion at Dallas Seminary back in the 50s and 60s over this issue of the blood of Christ. And, you know, and, and it, it created a big stir. He said, well, what was that all about? And I told him, he said, he, he wasn't really aware of those things. You see, so sometimes we get wrapped up in arguments and discussions that really aren't arguments or discussions anymore. He said, well, if you want to argue that, go ahead. But I think it's going to be, it's fairly self-explanatory that the term blood of Christ, when it's used in the scriptures, means the entirety of the work that he did for you. And it's not restricted. Here's the key thing. It's not restricted simply to the literal blood in his veins. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Testament system of sacrifices, uh, think back to that. The animal's throat was cut, and the blood which represented the life of that animal was then poured out upon the altar, and actually it provided a covering for sin. And so when the imagery being, when God the Father looked down upon the sin of mankind, all he saw was the blood of the animal. And so that represented what would come later, and that's the death of Christ on the cross. But, but that's not the way our Lord was executed. If it was a direct parallel, then our Lord would have had to have his throat cut, and that blood would have been poured out upon the altar. But that's not what happened. He was crucified. And ordinarily, a person didn't die from bleeding to death when they were crucified. Ordinarily, when a person was crucified, they died from suffocation or asphyxiation. And if not that, they would die from exposure to the elements. It was a very brutal form of execution. And the crosses weren't generally as, as high as some of the Renaissance painters paint them. And so uh, part of the torture of, of Roman crucifixion would be wild dogs and animals would come in and just chew the flesh off people's feet. So they may have died of, of just pure exposure to the elements as well as that. But they seldom died. Of, of bleeding to death. So somewhere along the line, though, the Protestants picked up a Roman Catholic tradition that, that it was the literal blood in his veins that was the most important thing, and that's not, that's not the meaning of the text. That term, we shouldn't restrict it. Actually, it's kind of silly to restrict it to just that. And I'm not putting down the literal blood in his veins. That's, that's all part of it. It's all part of a big package. But if we restrict it to that, we miss the beauty of the term. The term means the entirety of what he did. That's why... In Kittle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, the, the, one, the man who wrote that particular article called it a pregnant verbal symbol, meaning a symbol that's full of meaning, that, that includes the entirety of the work 
that Jesus Christ did on the cross. So that's why you can say through faith in his blood, and, and you don't come off sounding like some silly, mystic, evangelical Christian. And say, what does that mean, through faith in his blood? Well, I mean, there's, you, you picture a blood bank. You know, is, there some, is there some special mystical significance? Was there a, a bowl that an angel took and, and caught up all the blood that came out of Jesus Christ's wounds and then took it to heaven and presented it to the Father as an atoning sacrifice? Where do you find that? You don't find it in the New Testament. But if you, and a lot of you are former Roman Catholics, you were born in, into that um, faith, and I'm not trying to disparage your, your former life at all, but just perhaps one of your former thoughts. And that is on this, this issue of the blood of Christ. It, it's, it is a, a pregnant verbal symbol for the entirety of the work that he did. Just keep that in mind. That's why we don't sing certain hymns, because frankly they just get silly when it comes to the, to the blood of Christ. And I wish we didn't, because some of them are actually pretty good hymns. If it wasn't for a line or two, they just kind of messed it up. So when Paul says that Jesus Christ was, was um, publicly displayed as a propitiation or satisfaction in his blood through faith, Paul is talking about through faith in the work of Jesus Christ, as opposed to your own work. That's what it's all about. You're, you're either trusting yourself and your own goodness or Jesus Christ and what he did. That's all Paul's saying here. And that's be saying a lot. Now, here's the other thing. we got just a couple minutes to go, but here's the other thing I want your complete concentration on because I want to be up front with you. I've taught this way for five or six years now, at least with most of you. I presented a paper on this at the National Teaching Pastors Conference, but I know it's still an issue for some. And there are some that would hold that because Christ died for all, that he paid the penalty of sin on the cross, that sin is no longer an issue, that complete forgiveness was rendered at the cross, and the only sin for which one goes to hell is the sin of not trusting Jesus Christ for eternal life. And they would equate that to the unpardonable sin in Matthew chapter 12. The problem with that is it's not a scriptural view. It makes sense logically, but it's not a scriptural view. Paul says in Ephesians to those people who were now saved about their unsaved status. You were, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Twice Jesus tells Pharisees, unless you believe in me, you're going to die in your sin. And other times he says, in your sins, you're going to die. The point is, yes, Jesus Christ did pay the penalty for everyone's sin on the cross. But until you personally appropriate that for you, you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. Now granted, the one reason you will go to hell, that everyone will go to hell, is because you fail to appropriate the remedy. But when you're at the judgment at the great white throne judgment, yes, you're still in your sins. And there are a lot of ramifications for that. Now look at this passage carefully. You don't get to be associated with the propitiation with Jesus Christ being publicly displayed as the propitiation, until you exercise faith. That's how you get associated with it. If you have never personally trusted Jesus Christ, you have not been forgiven of your sins. And I believe that's what Paul's doing throughout the entire argument in the first part of Romans. That's why he says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If it wasn't an issue anymore, people would say, Well, well, in, in the Old Testament, you know, Jesus Christ hadn't died yet, so people are still in their sins. Yeah, I can, 
I can maybe understand that. That's, this is not an Old Testament passage. This is a New Testament passage. Christ has already died. He's already paid the penalty for sin. So why is Paul spending so much time on it? And I, I was at a conference, and a very well-known theologian stood up and challenged me on it. He said, you're spending a lot of time on sin in this argument. Well, I said, well, that's all I'm doing is presenting the argument that Paul made. He's the one who spent a lot of time on sin. He's the one who spent 118 through 320 telling us we're all dead because of our sins. Now, here's the deal. If you, if you haven't trusted Jesus Christ, then you have not received the gift of forgiveness. And you're still dead in your trespasses and sin. So I reject the view that says that the only sin for which Christ could not die is the rejection of himself. The reason I reject this is because it's not biblical. I'd be happy to talk to you about it, but it's not biblical. And so that's why I reject that. Um, bottom line, though, is <laughs> that the issue is not to clean up your life. I don't want to say if you could quit sinning, then you would end up going to heaven. It's already too late. The issue is Jesus Christ. But let's don't... Let's don't go farther than what the text would let us go. We must exercise faith in Christ and faith alone. By works or human effort, no one has ever been saved or will ever uh, receive everlasting life or reach everlasting heavenly glory. The bottom line is that the price paid for us in this propitiation, the price it cost God to cover up that wrath, was extremely high. It was as high as it gets. I would pray that we would remember that and live every day as though we really appreciated that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these passages that are so heavy in theology, but at, at their conclusion, we realize that are so rich in their application. Father, we thank you that you put forth your son, that you offered up your son as, a, as an atoning sacrifice, as a satisfying sacrifice to cover up your wrath so that we, through faith in Jesus Christ and his atoning work, might have a relationship with you that will last forever and that will, will, will be in a state of eternal bliss. But, Father, at the same time, we think of family and friends who might not have made that decision, and we pray for them. We pray that we would be bold and we would appreciate our own salvation enough that we would go and talk to them about theirs. And may the Holy Spirit go with us, and may you be glorified by it. And now, Father, we pray that you would dismiss us with the riches of thy grace and peace and mercy upon us, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, one of the books on...